If you know me, then you know my story. If you don't, then here it is. I'm a husband, father, and a one percenter in my industry, living what most consider to be the American dream. Then triumph went to tragedy. My 14-year-old daughter passed away suddenly and tragically. The dream became a nightmare. A time of despair became a year of repair. I went from learning to survive to learning to thrive. This time, life was gonna be on my terms. I went on a journey of self-discovery. What I avoided in my past, I made my immediate future. I took massive action. I decided to change. I decided to not be a victim. I made the decision to be the complete version of myself, which is what led me to create this podcast, The Daily Decision. Let me help you achieve your dream. Let me help you find true fulfillment. Let me help you become the best version of yourself. The choice is yours. Take massive action now. Make the decision today. Invest in yourself. Listen and learn along with me because my job is to ensure that you can find greatness without tragedy. My job is to ensure what happened to me doesn't happen to you. It all starts with a decision. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of The Daily Decision. I'm your host, Michael Chabot. Today is the next interview in a wonderful series of books entitled Resetting Our Future. And I always like to start with a quote from Tim Ward, publisher of Changemaker Books. At this critical moment in history, we have a rare opportunity to reset our path and avert even bigger disasters ahead. The climate crisis, inequality, unemployment, racial injustice, ecological and economic collapse, and the next pandemic. This series of short, powerful books provides a platform for pragmatic thought leaders to share their visions for big, paradigm-shifting changes and to motivate humankind to take the first difficult steps towards a better future. Today's guest is Tom Bowman. Tom is an advisor, speaker, and change maker who believes that the solutions to even the world's toughest problems are within our grasp. His gift for distilling complex problems and scientific information to their central nugget empowers people to take ownership and act. As principal of Bowman Change Inc., Tom works with people and organizations who care deeply about their communities and their world. Bowman's contributions as a strategic advisor on an action for climate empowerment framework for the United States are helping shape our world's future. This strategic framework is an initiative by educators, activists, policymakers, communication professionals, and others to advance the goals of the Paris Agreement. Bowman's latest book, What If Solving the Climate Crisis is Simple, was heralded by Michael Mann as an inspiring, concise primer on climate action. He's been featured by CNN, NPR's Marketplace, Time, New York Times, Science, and other leading media outlets. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's great to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And um, man, we've got a lot to accomplish today. <laughs> There's a lot to get to, and, and I promise we'll do our best, guys, to cover this. It is such a great read. Um, as with the other authors on this show, I read the book twice. I like to read it once oh. just to read it. And then I read it a second time, go through it, and really kind of what I feel, pick out the gold nuggets that are within. And man, there are a lot in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. That's nice to say. There are a lot. And <clears throat> the first question that I always 
like to ask is what inspired you to join this group of authors and write this book? Yeah. I was in the process, you know, I've been working on climate change as a communication professional, as an exhibit designer and writer, business, you know, green business guy for about 15 years uh, and working on energy efficiency much longer than that. And in 2020, during the pandemic, um, everybody saw, everybody in the climate world saw the possibility the administration would change, which it did from Trump to Biden, and that that would open a door for climate action and rejoining the Paris Agreement in ways that the United States hadn't done before. And so this is the genesis of the other book that I and the co-editor with, with Deb Morrison, um, that uh, uh, or, uh, an effort by about 200 really diverse climate leaders of all kinds to create a framework for, for policies that would mobilize the public to all of society to take action on climate change as we went back in really toward COP26, which has now just been completed. And in the process, I was corresponding with a colleague uh, who introduced me to Tim Ward, the publisher of Changemakers Books. And I had long been thinking about writing a, a, a book about climate change specifically, and I'd been thinking about how I'd want to structure it. And <laughs> Quite literally, it was early July of 2020, and I had my first conversation with Tim, and he said, great, write me a proposal. I submitted the proposal in early July. Um, I got the contract on the, about the 15th, and <laughs> his goal was to have a manuscript by the end of the month. Wow. Which I delivered. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it helps that these are short books in a way, but it, it makes it really challenging to be concise. Um, and so in order to have done that, you know, I've been working on this stuff for a long, long time. And this book really kind of captures a lot of, a lot of what I've learned, a lot of what I've experimented with, a lot of research I've done on my own. Um, and I can't and the imagine the idea of doing the idea of, of putting a statement into people's hands that might change the way they even think about this challenge was something well, I couldn't and, refuse. <laughs> yeah, that's you bring up something really good and and I'll just preframe my question by saying I can't imagine how difficult it must have been to write a book that was this short because you have so much information because I can tell you as preparing for this show to try and, as we were talking before we started recording to keep this show within the hour time frame you have so much information we could probably go for three or four hours. <laughs> yeah, we probably could. And you right? could read the book in that amount of time. <laughs> Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, I think, again, so much to get into. But what I would say is, you know, uh, Deb Morrison and I talked about this, you know, climate deniers. And we'll talk a lot about that as we get in the show, into the show. I'm not one of them, but I would say that I'm definitely somebody that sometimes thinks, well, this problem's bigger than me. What can I do? Yes, right? of course. What, what can I do? And, and, and those are all the things I want to talk about. But my first question kind of leading into this is, are we too late to solve the climate crisis? Yeah. yeah, what a great question. And in fact, that's the opening question of the book. Is it too late? Is Are we just going to rearrange the deck chairs on the proverbial Titanic if yes. we take action? And the answer is emphatically no, not at all. Because the because climate change isn't a binary thing. It's like it isn't a switch that's either climate change or no climate change. 
the more carbon we put in the atmosphere, the longer it resides in the atmosphere, the warmer the climate system is going to get, the more energetic it's going to get, and the more harsh the impacts on all of all living organisms are going to be. Mm-hmm. So no matter where we start, we're not too late. And, uh, and we are still within the window of avoiding, you know, certainly the worst case scenarios, but also some of the scenarios that, that are pretty daunting in the first place. You don't want them. Um, we can't avoid all of it, but that to me, that's, that's like saying, you know, I'm, I'm lost in the woods and I'm cold. Does that mean I should give up? I don't think so. I think you want to get yourself warm and figure out how you're going to walk out of the woods and you'll Mm -hmm. suffer a bit, but you'll get out. Yeah. Well, and, and you talked about it. I mean, you can't deny, you can't deny that there's been a rise in global temperatures. You can't deny that wildfires in California have Hmm. increased dramatically. That drought in, in the Western half of the United States has increased tremendously over the last I don't know, I would say 20, 30 years. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, we talked about in, in my last interview with Bart, another author in the series, we talked about, you know, low-lying areas like Louisiana, New Orleans, you know, mm-hmm. that whole Gulf, you know, increase in hurricanes and, and rains and flooding. And, you know, so these things are real. Um, you know, what do you say to those people that, that are climate deniers. I know that's probably a yeah. question that's really early on in this, but I think it's it's got to be addressed because there are it so does. many people. It does. The thing that that a lot of people haven't quite grasped is that we experience a changing climate as an amplification of the things we would experience from time to time anyway, right? There is coastal flooding during during king tides and and big storms. There are wildfires in the West. There are periods of drought and heavy rainfall. There are intense storms that cause flooding in the Midwest. All of those things happen. And so, so it's, you know, it's hard to think of climate change as one new thing that's going to land on us in a, in a big event that makes us all wake up and say, holy cow, climate right. change has happened. In fact, what it is, is turning up the heat, literally, on all of those processes that we normal experience, normally experience. So heat waves become longer, more frequent, more severe. Droughts become deeper, longer, more frequent. Storms become more intense and more frequent. So it's an amplification of the things that that are troublesome already, and the farther this goes along, it, you know. Um, the good news on that score, though, is that a majority of people in the United States now say that they have experienced the changing climate in their own lives, which is very different than even five years ago when that wasn't true. Uh, and people who've had direct experience of things being different where they live are much more amenable to the idea that that the climate is changing. Then you get to the next question that the deniers ask, how do we know it's us? Well, Mm. right. Did we cause it or is nature just changing the climate? Well, the answer is nature doesn't change the climate this quickly. It happens very gradually over, you know, millennia uh, and longer than that. So, um, and there's a lot of scientific research. And if you, if you deny science, you deny science, but the scientific research identifies the isotopes of CO2 in the atmosphere, and it's very clear it's coming from fossil fuels and not from volcanoes or other sources. So, yeah, it's the science is really well understood. 
And what I say to deniers who say, yeah, but I don't trust the scientists, I ask them, do you ever take antibiotics? Do you ever get on an airplane? Do you drive a car? It's all based on the same science. So how do you pick and choose the science that you're going to believe versus the science you disregard? And once you get past that, I think that the real question that the deniers struggle with ideologically is what kind of solutions are we willing to to undertake? Because there's a very strong libertarian streak in the in the denier community, which is a mm-hmm. shrinking community, by the way. They they're afraid of big government solutions and a heavy hand of regulation that they don't want to see. They see it as a denial of freedom in the same way they see vaccines as a denial of liberty, right? And I think that's really the crux of it. If if we can talk about solutions in ways that don't trigger people, it's much easier for people to accept the reality of the problem we're dealing with. That's that's a tough thing to pull off in a place like Washington, where everything is so polarized and soundbite driven. But among the rest of us out here in the world, I think it there's a chance of making contact that way that's more meaningful. You know, it's interesting. This is off script, but as you're talking and I'm thinking about it, and, and I can only address here in the United States, but do you think part of this comes from our sense of entitlement as Americans? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. We And it also comes from a, a piece of human psychology that I've, I've been taught about, which is our, our emotional brains, which is how we make a lot of our decisions the way we evaluate things. Um, Kind of unconsciously, we do it by feeling. We do it by memory. And the presumption that the brain makes as it does this is that the future is going to be like the past. So if you're a, a child and you touch a hot stove and you burn your hand, you assume that the stove is going to be hot and you don't touch it anymore, right? And unless you learn differently. Well, the same thing on a global scale is true of the weather patterns that we live with, right? If it's always... A kind of balmy at a certain time of year, or it's rainy at a certain time of year, or the intensity of the rain is within certain boundaries, we expect the future to be like that. And the thing that's so shocking is that, um, I heard a scientist actually say this, a child born today is born into a world that's fundamentally different than the, than the world that the parent was born into. Agreed. We've changed the atmosphere's chemistry enough that that the rules of the past don't apply anymore. And that's a hard thing for people to adjust to. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. So back on script, all this is great, <laughs> but I, there's so many things that I want to cover. Sure. Um, and and so just a couple of quick stats from, from this first chapter in the book, and I try and break it down chapter by chapter because I think otherwise it would just yeah. be too overwhelming because there's so much good stuff. But just a couple of stats. So roughly half of the public in the United States thinks global warming could be reduced, but only 6% think humanity will succeed in doing so. Mm-hmm. That, that's a tough one. I mean- Well, it do- is. Well, the good news in that is that, and I come at this as a communication professional, when you yeah. know, now we've identified the problem. The problem mm-hmm. is not that that people don't want climate action. The problem is that they don't think it can work, right? So that means that we need to build a sense of hope mm. in, the, in the way we approach this. We need to create opportunities for people to be engaged and feel good about themselves being engaged 
in their local communities, in their businesses, in their trade associations, and across their professions, in their voting habits, in their relationships with, with government officials. Um, they need to see hope. They need to see progress. And the, the good news is that there is an enormous amount to be hopeful for. There, there is a persistent narrative in the media. I've been listening for it lately that's probably 15 years old or 20 years old that says, we don't know how to solve this. This is a mm. mess. It's too political. We have to use fossil fuels anyway. And it's a, a, a continuous, yes, but, yes, but, yes, but kind of a mentality. But, you know, at, at COP, 450 banks, pension funds, and institutional investors all committed to no longer financing coal-fired power plants. The oh. price of renewable energy, new renewable energy development, is lower than the cost of developing fossil fuel energy sources. Um, uh, there's all kinds of momentum. The electric vehicle market is going crazy. I mean, the fact that yeah. Ford is going to make the F-150 electric, mm -hmm. they got 150,000 orders in the first week or so of, of allowing people to pre-order that car. And there's another truck out there, the Rivian, that, that is apparently getting mm -hmm. a lot of attention. Hertz just ordered 100,000 Teslas. I so saw anybody that. Who, anybody who thought Tesla was going away, wake up. This is, a, this is a shift. And these market forces, in addition to policy forces, start to create expectations of progress. It's not clear to me yet whether everybody's going to understand that as climate progress or just better stuff, yeah. but it gets us moving in the right direction and it starts to change our social norms and our way of thinking about what's possible. And that's, yeah. so we need a new narrative. We need the, mm. the media to, to start talking about, you know, assembling all the bright spots. California had a hundred percent renewable energy last, I think it was last February or the February before, um, Iowa gets 40% or so of its wind of its electricity from wind already. You know, it's not just a red state, blue state issue. It's everywhere. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because some of the interviews I've done, um, I did one recently with a gentleman who used to be the head economist at Freddie Mac, and he wrote an, uh, an article on climate change and how it will affect housing and housing finance mm -hmm. in the very near future. And, you know, we were talking about it and he's like, you know, we don't want to scare people, but I think we do actually. And I, <laughs> I don't want to be an alarmist, but I think we need to scare people enough to where they wake up and you say, look, this isn't a political issue, right? It's not yeah. left versus right or whatever. And, and again, I don't like my show to be about politics. So, but it's not a political issue. It really truly is. And I've learned so much in reading this series of books and, and interviewing authors like yourself is that it's a real issue. And we need to wake up and start to do our part, or one day we're going to wake up and what we know to be our planet is not going to be the same, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that the missing ingredient in most of the communication about this issue is that is that people think that if you scare people, they'll wake up and that'll be that'll move the needle. Mm. It turns out it doesn't. Um, I, I know some professionals in the public health world that said if you tell if you scare people about how their behaviors are hurting them, but they don't have any alternative. All you do is make them angry and make them turn away. Ah. And so if we're going to talk to people, you know, worry works better than fear. Fear is mm. paralyzing. Worry mm. is motivating. 
So scaring people to the extent that they're worried is a good thing to do if you combine it with hope, realistic hope uh, that gives people things to do that make sense. You know, I, I was uh, at a conference once um, with a previous book I had written and a guy came up to get it signed and he said, you ain't going to make me give up my pickup truck. And I said, where do you live? And he said, out of town, about 10 miles up a dirt road. I said, no one should take away your pickup truck. You need your pickup truck. You know, that's not the solution in your circumstances by right. any means. Right. And this is the thing we need to, to think about, uh, the things we can do in our organizations, in our businesses, our households, in our governance that make sense where we are Agreed. and given the resources that we have. And, and we should really be pushing ourselves, challenging our own assumptions to say, oh, that's a bridge too far. Is it really? Or is it that it just, we just interpret it that way, you know? How about a different interpretation? Try it on. See if it works. Yeah. I, I think that's, you know, we all have a responsibility in, if if not making it a better place, at least keeping what we have, right? I think that we've got to do at least that much and not just take, take, take from the resources and not give back. There's got to be a, yeah. a balance. Yeah. But, but also something you just said resonates with me. Why not try to create the society we've always wanted? Why mm. not create a society where there isn't any smog? Mm, Why not, you know, COVID taught us that people can, that large numbers of people can work at home effectively and no longer have to commute. And guess what? Those people don't want to go back to the office very often, mm -mm. you know, once in a while to see people, but not every day. So, We've suddenly learned in a heartbeat, really in a matter of a couple of weeks, that that we don't all have to commute. How about designing a society for ourselves, you know, bringing it to fruition where people don't have to commute anymore, where people can spend more time with their kids, right? They don't have to breathe unhealthful air, mm -hmm. um, don't have to live down, down wind from a coal-fired power plant and, right. and suffer health consequences. I mean, it's a... It's a win-win-win when you think about it that way. Yeah, I agree. All right, so <clears throat> God, so I told you guys, there's just so much good stuff here. We barely <laughs> scratched the surface, and you know, um, so a couple things. One really cool thing because I've heard so much about just this is a cool stat that I I wrote down. I wanted to share because I've heard so much about cattle, and and you gave an example. It says that cattle, for example, x exhale and belch methane gas, which is a, a potent greenhouse gas. Their contribution to global warming is relatively small, roughly 5%. This is the cool part. Research is underway that might make their contribution even smaller. Experiments have shown that adding a little bit of a certain seaweed to a cow's diet reduces methane production by nearly 60%. Yeah. That's cool. Isn't that cool? Yeah. yeah. I think it is. And what I love about this stuff, the reason I wrote this down is because what I love is that if we really focus on this, think about the the jobs that we could create and the opportunities for people, the small business opportunities, the innovation in making the planet a better place, a healthier place like you talked about. That's I think where what's missing in the conversation. That's right. And and it's it's a lot of creativity and a lot of ingenuity that makes yes. this work. So we all know about people like Elon Musk, who is the, you know, who invent, mm -hmm. reinvented what the electric car could be, made it sexy, fast, fun, powerful, and useful, right? Yep. That, that was a <clears throat> big deal. Figuring out how to add a certain seaweed to a cow's diet to reduce methane production is an example of the same kind of ingenuity 
right? Yes. Finding out that people can work at home over Zoom or some other platform uh, and still feel connected and still be productive and have a better quality of life, that's a huge innovation. Uh, re redistricting parts of cities so that you can live and walk to work and mm. have recreation and have out you know meals and entertainment within walkable areas most yes. of the time that's a really clever innovation right it's, there are lots of opportunities for this kind of clever innovation and some of them are technological some of them are policy some of them are are the way you organize the operations of the place where you work. Some of them mm -hmm. are, are very personal transformations. Um, and, and we can just herald and celebrate all the great, the great innovations that make progress really, that accelerate progress. This is off my, my script of questions here, but are they teaching this in universities these days? You know, I'm, I'm a little far beyond my college days. <laughs> I, um, I've given a few talks with business school students primarily, and, mm. um, and they talk about business process. The first book mm -hmm. I wrote, The Green Edge, is about business process in the, in the huge sprawling exhibition and trade show and corporate meetings industry, how to be sustainable there. Um, and so I've had entree to some business classes, and they tend to talk about it um, in kind of technocratic terms. Um, but I think in the innovation centers at universities, whether the tech incubators, the, the, they're trying to spawn, or spawn entrepreneurship that those centers, I think there's a lot more conversation about this there. Well, that's exciting. And I'll wrap a bow around this with just by saying I read an, um, it was actually a thesis of a grad student from Harvard business school, his MBA. And it was interesting because he said that, you know, in his research and his studies, he said a corporation, their first priority used to be a steward to the community in which they operated and ran their business, right? Give yeah. back to that community, create jobs and give back. And he said what he had found through business school is now the number one thing they teach you is drive the stock price higher, right? And I yeah. think that that type of mentality and entitlement and things we've been talking about is why we find ourselves where we do today with global warming, with the climate crisis, and I think it's a return to whether you're a small business or a large corporation is that that steward kind of mentality on how you can give back into your community, that, that steward kind of mentality on how you can give back into your community, being a wicked. I want to transition. You mm -hmm. talk about global warming, wicked problem. Yeah. And I think it's so, important so, to talk about that. I know, you know we I have, but expand book, on that. What if solving the climate crisis is simple? Because and I think it's, it's about... important to the gestalt of reinterpreting what we're looking at. You know, this is a book about, right. um, you know, the problem looks intractable because we look at it a certain way. We make certain assumptions mm -hmm. about it. We've been taught certain things about it. And one of the things we've been taught that I think is, is in many ways erroneous is the idea that global warming is a wicked problem. That's a term that means it's a problem that's so complicated that you can never really see the whole problem. You can't get enough data. It's always changing anyway as you gather the data. The things you try to solve uh, cause unintended consequences that you didn't foresee that you then have to go out and solve. And so the bottom line with a wicked problem idea is that you can't really solve it. All you can do is try to manage it and take some lumps as you try to manage it. Right. And I've heard scientists describe climate change this way over mm. and over and over again. 
And I think it's a mistake, but it comes from a good place. It comes from the fact that scientists are in the business of studying incredibly mm -hmm. complex systems. The climate system on this planet is a is an incredibly complex set of dynamics about moving heat around in the atmosphere and the ocean and the interactions with rocks, the lithosphere as it's called, and, and all of biology, all the plants, all the animals, the amount of sunlight we get, the changes in our orbit around the sun, all of that stuff impacts our climate. So it's a complicated thing. So they tend to think in complicated ways. And when they think about solutions to the problem and policymakers as well, they talk about it in very complex ways. It's like, so imagine you've got this Gordian knot, right? And, and you want to untangle something about food systems. And so you pull on the food thread and all of a sudden you're pulling on the fossil fuel thread because that's where your, your herbicides right. and pesticides come from. And there's global shipping involved and there are energy systems to process food. And then there's financial markets and government investment and subsidies and water systems. And all of a sudden it's become such a complicated thing. You're it's like, nobody can make a plan about this. And the error in that, in that approach. And I think it's the, it's the reason you keep hearing people say, did the COP26, was it a mm. success or a failure? Is because we think that there must be a master plan. There must be somebody who can put together the plan that we can all check the boxes in and solve the climate crisis. This isn't that kind of problem. That, that works if you're trying to invent right. a better coffee cup and you need, you know, it needs to have a certain amount of insulation and it's got to have a certain, you know, you got to let the air out while you drink air in <clears throat> while you let the coffee out, all of that kind of stuff. You can treat those kinds of problems that way. But climate change is an adaptive problem, which means that there are all these thousands of experiments and innovations going on everywhere. The, the seaweed for, for animal feed, cattle feed, the, the electric battery for a car, recycling of electric batteries that Redwood Industries is starting to do. All this kind of stuff um, means that we learn quick, we can learn quickly, we can share information, we can fail quickly and succeed quickly, do more of what works, do less of what doesn't work. And the, everything continues to change as we go. There's, a, there's an adage in the literature about what it is that, that allows some people to survive accidents in the wilderness, catastrophes like they're lost at sea in a raft or their um, the plane crashes in the mountains and they've got to find a way out, that kind of stuff. And the adage is you do the next right thing. Mm. In other words, nobody has a master plan to survive. It's impossible. But you do the next thing to do to keep to give you the next opportunity. So if you're wet, you get dry. If you're cold, you get warm. If you if you're tired, you rest. You know, um, you make a plan, and then you you start executing that plan, and you constantly reevaluate. Where am I? Where? How are things going? What do I need to change? That's really mm -hmm. what this is. And when you look at it that way, the the onus of the of solving a wicked problem, which isn't possible, goes away. Right. And instead, you create a spirit, a, a can do spirit of let's try this. Let's see how it works. Let's try this. Let's share this with some other people. Let's learn from them. Um, and let's keep moving, taking the next right step and the next right step. Um, and I don't know if you're going to ask me the question, but that leads to the sort of mantra of the book. Um, 
which is if we if we flip our assumption of yes. a wicked problem on its head, what do we see? We see that there's only one thing we have to really do. I mean, mostly one thing we have to do. We have yeah. to stop burning fossil fuels, and we have to do it well before mid-century, and we absolutely positively don't want to fail. When you think of it that way, there are thousands of ways to mm -hmm. reduce fossil fuel use. Policy ways, personal ways, pocketbook purchasing ways, um, lifestyle habit ways, and they're amenable to everybody and every business, every institution, every community, every household. That means we, we can stop being victims of our assumptions about this problem, this wicked problem that's too big for us and it's going to smash us and we can't solve it, to becoming rescuers of ourselves and our communities and our families and taking positive action. None of us can do the whole thing alone. That's not the point. The point is that when you start taking action, you shift something shifts in your psychology and and your your um, your whole approach to this, your whole approach to yourself in this problem changes in a yeah. really positive. That's way. great stuff. It's interesting when I was uh, interviewing Deb, <clears throat> who you co-authored the other book with. She she gave me a, a a little tidbit that just blew me away. She said that. Uh, food waste is one of the largest contributors to methane gas, in uh, which to me is mind blowing. Um, and talk about what you can start to do. I mean, composting is really easy to do, even if you live in the city, right? Now you can get like a mini composter, or communities can create, you know, areas like I've seen in New York where they have gardens and areas where they can compost and do things. So there are ways to do it. And like you said, I love how you say that when it becomes this big, wicked, ugly problem. It's kind of like, how do you eat an elephant, right? One bite at a time. It's, it's, it's right. a similar thing there. And so this is a question that I ask everybody, but I, I, I want to frame first, cause you say it in the book, I've heard countless arguments that the inability to control what other nations do implies that there's no point in making an effort here or anywhere else for that matter, which I love that you said that because I always hear people, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, when they talk about yeah. What, what about, about China? China? What about India? <laughs> Those are the two countries that I hear them say, well, even if we do everything here, what about China? What about India? Well, so there are several ways to answer that question. The first is, what about us? We are historically the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. I mean, since the Industrial Revolution, China has surpassed us because of the rapid growth in their, and their enormous population and the fact that they all want to live mm. the same lifestyle we live, which is high consumption, high energy use. Um, so we have a, in my view, we have a moral obligation to lead. We also have a financial interest in leading because when you become an energy efficient, renewable energy society, you mm -hmm. save a ton of money. Right, you're no longer buying those fuels. You're reducing the costs of health care because when you reduce pollution, people are healthier and they don't need to go to the hospital. You have less loss of productivity. China and India know this, um, and China is is developing renewable resources faster than any other nation just because their scale is so big. You know, 1.6 billion people, and we're 330 million. So it's a it's a you know they're doing everything fast, and they will continue to do fast, do it fast, because to um, to be a competitor in a global market where other industrial nations, especially the world's largest economy, which is what we still have, 
um, is moving to a renewable, low-carbon future, it's going to be a game changer, and everybody else is going to want and need to keep up. And if we're smart about it, we will not only you know negotiate for stronger action earlier, but we would use some of our wealth to help facilitate the transformation in other countries um, and build alliances around that so that, uh, you know, this, this, this gets into politics and international relationships and, and whether you want to be a global leader or an isolation kind of uh, uh, society. But we have the resources to help move the rest of the world. And we can lead by our example. I live in California. We have the fifth largest economy in the world all by ourselves. It's huge. And California has the most aggressive climate policies in the United States, and they're proving to be very successful so far. And our economy has grown as a result of taking climate action. And we are becoming an influencer. You know, just the state of California by itself has been an influencer Agreed. globally. So, so, you know, it's a... Again, there's nothing here that's an on-off switch. It's all. I process. think that's what makes it so. Uh, I don't want to use the word difficult, but I think that's why you have different views and oppositions because there's no clear cut. Like boom. Now you did say, yeah. One one thing is stop using fossil fuels by mid-century, right? Like to me, that's clear cut. Like boom. That's something mm -hmm. that we can focus on. Now right. on the flip side, and you mentioned this. You know, um, let's take where I live, for example, right? There's a lot of ranches, a lot of farms outside of the city. Are we saying that, you know, we're okay if you live on a farm or ranch and you still want to drive your truck? You can, but maybe in cities like Denver, we should have the majority of people driving electric vehicles and not, is that what we're saying? That's part of it, or riding public transportation, or walking, or riding a bike. I mean, we can make hmm. cities more bike-friendly, more walking-friendly by rezoning so people can uh, live and shop and, and work closer to one to where they live. Where that makes sense. It doesn't right. make sense everywhere, and it doesn't suit everybody's desires and lifestyle. Um, and I would say if you're on a ranch, you need a truck right? You need a pickup truck. That's where a pickup truck is. A, and if you're doing a construction mm -hmm. work, you need a pickup truck. Yep. You got to haul stuff around. You're not going to do that in a Tesla. Um, and I think that in, you know, the, the way to help accelerate the market is through the mm -hmm. buying power of the government to buy electric vehicles. And that lowers the cost for everybody else. Um, building out the convenience, which is what the yes. charging stations are all about all over the country. Uh, and and giving incentives, financial incentives, so that people are eager to try it and buy it. Once you try it, you don't want to go back for the most part. And and then watch paying attention to the market because uh, you know electric pickup trucks are finally coming. Mm -hmm. Electric SUVs are finally coming. Five years from now, the marketplace is going to look very different. And I think that you, you we will just see. A I think shift so that. That you don't I have agree. to force and I, on Well, people. but I, what I like what you're saying is, and that's exactly it. I think why there's so much opposition is because I think most people feel like it's just a black, white, you know, just one way or the other. There's no, and and you just made it like, no, actually there is. It It's not a all or nothing. We have to start here and then work our way to a better place, right? And I think if there was mm -hmm. more of that message out there, 
I think more people, those climate deniers would start to open up to it maybe a little bit. Um, man, as I said, look, we're 38 minutes in and we're just, I mean, we've got so much more to do. Um, go ahead. You had a thought you wanted to say real quick. Well, I did. I was thinking of the ranch and, you know, so, so if you live on a ranch, you, you're not going to reduce your fossil fuel use for your truck, but what about the way you pump water? How does that get pumped? How about the way you power the pumping of water, you know, solar, um, or wind, depending on where you live, more likely solar changing property rights so that people can put windmills on their ranches and farms so that they're yeah. actually earning money for the wind energy that that's generated for them is a win for them. Uh, and that's a simple, I mean, that's a policy change, right? And it's nothing's easy, but, but if that's done, there's a way to still drive a pickup truck and make a big contribution until you can yeah. drive I, something else. When the market see, I think if you. there was more of that message, it would be, people would be so much more open to it because I think it, it goes back to, yeah. and I hate the word entitlement because we all know ranchers and farmers are probably some of the hardest working people in the United States, right? So I don't want to say they're entitled. What I would say is though, is that they, they know how to do things the way they do it, right? And so for them to say, well, I can't, they probably think, and I can't speak for them, but maybe they think I can't run my ranch with an electric truck or an electric vehicle. I need my big powerful mm -hmm. diesel or whatever it is I drive. Um, so I like this message. Go ahead. Well, I want to, so I've been a small business owner forever and, uh, uh, Anybody who's a rancher is this, and most a lot of people who are farmers are small business owners. And the thing that that if you're not a small business owner, you might not understand is that those people don't have a they're they're on a tightrope without a net, right? They need to do something that they know works. And so, if we're going to encourage change, the way to encourage change is to literally show people that it yes. makes life better for them. It makes their finances better. Um, it's not, or at least it allows them to fulfill their aspirations to do the right thing, to be good stewards of the land they're on, um, without taking an additional Correct. risk of collapse, financial collapse and suffering. And in some cases, uh, government extension agents can do that. In some cases, business, you know, industry people can do it. In my experience, the strongest, uh, uh motivation is what you hear mm. from your peers, from other business owners who've tried something and it worked for them and because they live, they live with the same risks you live with. And so that builds a level of automatic trust and a relevance yes. to the conversation. <clears throat> so, you know, we need to pay as much attention to the messengers as we pay to the messengers. Well, and themselves. I, and I love this and we didn't rehearse this. And by the way, I'm in the dark cause I lost the light while we were going, but we're just, we're trudging through here. Um, that's it. The, that's it. You're bringing us into the light today with this conversation. So I love that we transitioned right into this without even trying. So my question is, so it's a quotes last question. So many people say, you know, it's not me. How can I make a difference? This is a, it's a macro problem. It's a, you know, it's big companies are to blame. And we've talked about this, right? But I love in the book, mm -hmm. and this is my question is, or address this by telling us what you did with your 12 person design firm that you talk about, like, Hey, we did yeah. this, we looked at it this. And I like that you looked at it from a business point of view and said, well, you know, like you said, we're operating without a net here. We're, you know, so expand on that because it's right. a great lesson. Yeah. 
I was um, I was highly motivated. I did my second climate science exhibition design project. I was the lead interpreter, uh, and the exhibit opened in two thousand four, or excuse me, two thousand seven, when the when another IPCC report was coming out. And I had literally had an epiphany, which we can talk about. I mean, it just did a, a sudden insight into how far down the climate change road we were and what that was going to mean. And so one of the things I did in response, in addition to sort of reorganizing my whole work life, um, was to experiment with my company and see if I could reduce our carbon footprint dramatically and I discovered I didn't really have any help. You know, I called our utility company and they gave us free uh, compact fluorescent light bulbs, which saved me right. $300 maybe. And later they came out and swapped them for um, for LEDs when LEDs took over. Uh, and that was a nice help. But they were, because we were a small business, there were no other incentives. There was no cool roof incentive. There was no energy audit. There was no HVAC incentive. And so... I followed a, um, a sort of a tried and true, well-tested strategy, which is to set goals that seem impossible and then announce to the staff that failure is not an option and presented the goals. And my, my uh, office manager literally asked, are you crazy <laughs> <laughs> when I did this, right? Um, and they were goals for water consumption, electricity use, gasoline use, and recycling and landfill waste. And I didn't know where to begin. I did what everybody did. I called uh, a solar installer, Solar City at the time, and and they said, "Well, we have to build you a ninety thousand wow. dollar carport, solar carport, because your roof doesn't face in the right direction." Wow. And I said, oh, "I'm spending three thousand dollars a year on energy, <laughs> on electricity. That just doesn't make any sense, right?" Uh, and there were no incentives for small businesses at the time, so. Uh, I talked to an architect and he said, put on a highly reflective metal roof and about four inches of insulation so that your building doesn't heat up in the summertime. You don't need to run the air conditioning so much. Well, that would have been a $40,000 exercise and I couldn't afford yeah. that either. So I thought I was out of luck. And so I just decided, let's make the decisions we make anyway, every day, green decisions. So... um it's time to replace a vehicle, the company car. Most business owners, <clears throat> their car is owned by the business because it's good for tax advantage. And I sold a small SUV and got a Prius because it was the most energy efficient car I could buy. And when I was in the finance office buying it, the the finance guy said at Toyota, why are you buying a Prius? And I said, because it's the lowest you know carbon emission vehicle I can right. find. And he got up and came around his desk to shake hands with me for actually saying that to him, which was kind of... Yeah. Amazing to me. Um, our lease ran out on our copy machine. We could have bought it for a dollar, but it was old and not great. And uh, and we're in a design office. We wanted a really high-end color multifunction machine. I said, okay, go find the machines that do what you want to the staff. And then let's figure out which one is Energy Star rated, the most energy efficient one. We did the same thing on an August afternoon. Our air conditioner broke mm. down. And so I called in an air conditioning guy and said, you got to replace it. I said, okay, where's the break point where I'm spending more money but not getting any more efficiency? Let's buy right at that line as best we can figure it out. Um, and we did some other simple stuff. And we, at the beginning of this, because I wanted to treat it as an experiment, I joined the climate registry. So we were reporting our energy use, gasoline use, all of it every every year and getting an emissions report back and we were like 18 tons of emissions 
a year and a half later, we were two thirds wow. less. Two thirds wow. less. And nobody could see a difference in our lifestyle. And so I wanted to to figure out how much did I spend? Am I saving any money? Is you know, if I'm gonna talk about this, is it a good deal or a bad deal? And the thing that occurred to me is that I'd always heard consultants talk about you you think of three years of energy savings as your as your payback. And I think I don't make decisions that way. So I've got a number of printers in the office and we buy paper and we have them serviced and we buy toner. Let's add up the cost of all that stuff. Because what happened is our new machine was so nice, people turned everything else off. Wow. And we turned off our big color plotters. So we weren't buying paper and ink and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I was driving the car a lot less. The insurance cost was lower. The, the maintenance costs were lower. So I added all that in and discovered we were saving $9,000 a year for doing really, really boringly simple things. See, and that's what I love that, about it, it is that it wasn't an upheaval. It was little tweaks, right? And and yeah. do you agree that it we can do the same thing in our personal households and other businesses could do the same thing? Oh, yes, right? absolutely. I mean, this whole thing at the end of An Inconvenient tr Truth, please change one light bulb. It's like, no, good Lord, no. <laughs> Change all right. your light bulbs. If you buy LEDs, you will never have to buy light bulbs again as long as you live, probably. Yeah, I mean... That's how long they last, yeah. right? And they hardly use any yep. electricity. So so you reduce your energy costs. Plug everything you can into a power strip that shuts itself off or that you shut off when you're not using the device. And that's 10% of most people's electricity bill yeah. right there. Yeah. It's vamp, quote-unquote vampire power. It's simple stuff. And you can... Been out from there. You know, you can think about what you drive, how much you drive, um, how your property is shaded, and how much <clears throat> you know how, ceiling fans instead of air conditioning. All that you can go down that road, and it's simple, simple things, which just tells you that there is it's so much waste built into our lifestyles, energy waste, because energy has always been cheap, yep. and it's becoming expensive in a lot of different ways, and so. Uh, if we start treating energy as if it's a value and treat it preciously, use it less, in the in the basic decisions we make, you don't have to fret over remembering to do something differently every day. You just sort of set up a system that takes care of yeah, itself. I love that. So we, we've identified your next book, which is The Solutions, All the Things That People Can Do. That's the next book. So <laughs> yes, let's talk to Tim about that. I feel it. I feel it bearing. Well, Tim has talked to me about that. So it's bearing All down right. on me. I love that. So <laughs> we'll, we'll set an appointment for that book. Um, but so let's, man, we are, we are, we got a lot still left to cover. So I want to talk about, so let's, let's talk about, and this Again, it's just kind of working itself this way, a plan to turn things around. Let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, now we're talking about the the content of the book that you interviewed Deb Morrison yes. about that she and I were the writers for. This was a transformational experience for me, I have to say. And I've never, rarely do I do projects that make me see the world mm. differently. Um, and this was an opportunity to, to join up with a group of people who are going to organize um, something called a framework for climate yes. empowerment. Uh, climate empowerment, action for climate empowerment is a piece of the Paris Climate Agreement. And it urges 
every nation to develop a strategic plan, a strategy to mobilize their society to tackle the climate problem. And, you know, some smaller countries have done them. Um, they tend to treat them as education projects, but it's intended to be much more cross-cutting than that, uh, much bigger than that. And uh, none of the major emitting countries had submitted one. And we saw an opportunity that if Biden became elected uh, president, that maybe the United States would do one. Why not develop, do this a lot of the groundwork for that and develop a national strategic planning framework? Mm. In other words, gather a lot of input from a lot of leaders in climate justice, environmental justice, education, activism, science, communication, business, local policy, community governance, uh, uh, NGOs, and community organizers of different kinds. And there were about 200 people involved in in dialogues that lasted for out four hours. There were like four of these wow. dialogue events, all online, all during, uh, over Zoom, all during COVID. And Deb and I had the, had the incredible opportunity to be the writers mm. um, uh, of... And there was an elaborate system of note takers, reporters, you know, so we had all the, and the, the sessions were recorded. So we had all the details to work from. And our, our real goal was to write a framework that spoke in the voices of the people who participated. This is one of the big problems that, that happens in a lot of this kind of work is that leaders go out and gather input from, and then see it through their own eyes and, uh, uh, and then sort of go do what they were going to do anyway. And that's not what this framework is about. This framework is a discovery of just how much capacity there is, how much wisdom and insight and experience and motivation there is in communities all over the place. People of all ages, from people who are just starting their careers to people like me who've been at it forever. And it was um, indigenous leaders were there, people of color were there, immigrant communities were there, uh, uh, the the white establishment was there government bureaucrats were there and it's just an inspiring thing to know that that all we need to do is tweak how we support this work and we can accelerate things very very quickly yeah. so so that framework exists you can you can buy the book that Deb and I edited and it's got lots of content from other some of the participants commentaries the framework itself is online at aceframework.us yep. uh, for free. It's kind of wonky a little bit as a read. It's not written. The book has chapters that kind of lay out what's so inspiring about it. Um, and we didn't try to come to a consensus agreement. We tried to capture the diversity of perspectives because it's our diversity that, that will allow us to experiment with so many different Agreed. things. Yeah, and I like I know you talked about it, but the six elements within ACE are education, training, public awareness, public access to information, public participation, international cooperation, which really are all the things you've been talking about up to this point. That's right? right. It's That's right. It's what it's gonna take to get this done. Yeah, and it's gonna take um I think leadership you you asked about deniers at the beginning, and you know when when people see pioneers, when there's a narrative and you see pioneers making rapid progress, doing good things, you see the benefits of those things, that motivates the sort of the next most amenable mm. group, right? And as this starts to filter, this diffusion of these innovations, 
we shift our thinking and we start to defend where we're headed because we all that becomes our new identity, our new norm. And I really think that in many ways that's how the deniers are going to come along. They're going to see benefits. They're going to want an electric truck if it does good things Absolutely. for them. Absolutely. Right? Um, if they don't want to have to pay for oil changes and transmission repairs anymore, because you never will. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so changing the culture from a culture of being victims of a wicked problem to a culture of saying, this is a simple problem. I can help do something yes. about it. And I'm not alone. I'm part of a group of people who I know who are doing good things about it and it feels good. That starts to shift. Well, and that starts and, to shift. And we, I mean, look, the reality is, is climate change is real. Look at, I'm going to use California as an example. Look at all of the yeah. lakes in California that have devastatingly low water levels. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. That's real. You cannot deny yeah. that. And that's our water yes. supply. That's not that's not just the beauty of the lakes and the ecosystems. Correct. That's the water that people depend on to grow food and to live in cities. Yeah, and we didn't even talk about the environmental um, issues in, in the you know with with plants and animals and other species that are affected by this that have to do with the balance of everything. We didn't even scratch that that surface at all. <laughs> that's right. Um, that's right. So. Um, Man, we are we are just about out of time. Um, okay, so the last chapter in the book, which I love, is you say, luckily it comes down to us. And I, I got to tell you, when I was reading the book, I kind of laughed about it because I'm like, here I'm thinking, well, God, it's our fault. Like we've been so selfish and just consuming, consuming, consuming. And then you say, well, it comes down to us. I'm like, oh, crap. <laughs> but I guess it's a good thing, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I and I don't mean it the way that the fossil fuel industry has been teaching it to it, preaching it to us. They've been telling us that it's our fault that we have global right. warming, and it's our fault because our lifestyle is so bad. So, Michael, it's your fault, and Tom, it's Correct. your fault because you two guys aren't living properly, right? And that's how they deflect <clears throat> systemic change from happening, like a carbon tax mm -hmm. or policies that restrict oil development and the and the shift in developing an economy that's more sustainable. I don't mean it like that. What I mean is that when you see that this is a, a fundamentally simple problem and you find ways to participate in the solutions, it transforms who you are in a really positive way. This stops being this dreaded burden in our lives and starts being something practical that we are can feel good about being engaged in helping to solve doesn't guarantee that all of humanity is going to solve all of it, but it changes, it changes you. It changes yes. me. Um, and that is really important because as we do that, we fundamentally discover our own power. You know, that, that cliche of, of, um, uh, the American can do mm -hmm. spirit and the in American ingenuity that was yes. sort of grew out of world war two and the, and the industrial, um, economy that followed it. Um, it's that spirit again that that says, "Yeah, we can actually do this. Let's yeah. go do it. We've got what it takes to do it, and we feel it intrinsically. It's not just a, a marketing campaign or a policy campaign. We actually feel it. That's that's liberating. That's that's the whole. I game. love it. And you know, as we were talking, I wrote down some notes. So electric vehicles are 
a lot of fun. I, I have a Tesla. Um, they're fun to drive. Um, it's great. Like you said, there's very low maintenance on it. You know, you're not worried about when you see soaring gas prices, you just kind of laugh as you drive by and see them. Um, but something that nobody talks about is electric vehicles are a great opportunity for college students, right? Think about it. You provide your college student with an electric vehicle. There's very little maintenance. There's no oil changes. And then I wrote, you know, I'm sure we've all seen around cities, you have these scooters where you have a membership and you just kind of swipe it and then you can ride the scooter. Well, that's a great opportunity. But what about maybe doing that in cities with electric vehicles as well, cars, um, you know, where we don't own as many yep. vehicles, yeah. And that's where the the self-drive thing is headed to to Uber type taxi type services that that so you don't own a car, you pay to use a car when you right. want to use it. And and there is a lot of evidence from Ford Motor Company and others saying that they're just finding that younger people, millennials and Gen X or Gen Y, Gen Z, mm-hmm. um, don't want to buy cars. They see it as expensive, unnecessary. If they live in cities, you know, let's try to avoid the crazy expense of having a car. In in our generation, my generation, the car was your was your freedom. Yes. It was your coming of age escape yes. in being autonomous, right? Well, the smartphone and the and the internet are providing that for the subsequent generations. Agreed. And so so the car doesn't mean to them what it meant to older people. And that's that's good news. Because what we're seeing with any technology that we're embracing now is the beginning of a journey. We're not seeing, you know, it's not like electric cars are the answer. Correct. The electric car is the cool thing we can do yes. now to make a huge difference. And 10 years from now, it might look very, very different. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, while you're talking, I, I look at a city, let, let's use New York City as an example. No, no reason yeah. to own a car if you live in New York City. And if they had a system where if you had to leave the city where you could just use a car instead of, you know, having mm-hmm. to own one and pay to park it and store it, think about the reduction there in just carbon emissions. That's huge. Absolutely. And in, and in L.A. Basin, where I live, 20 million yes. people and everybody, every family has two cars oh, or yes. more. And everybody's driving and the smog is horrendous. And the amount of time people spend on the freeway is horrendous. Yeah, and I think um, the solutions here are correct. different, right? They're, we're not going to build a mass transit system for the LA basin that is super efficient like correct. in New York. We're too spread out. But but Zoom, Google Meets, Microsoft Teams, those provide so much of, of what a subway system in New York provides in New York. And the more we think about that, the more we embrace that, uh, the less money businesses have to spend on real estate to have yes. large staff come to one central place. Boy, does that change things. Absolutely. And, you know, the pandemic, as painful as it's been, I think, showed us a lot of things. And you talk about that in the book. There's there's a lot of things that it's shown us that, you know, we can do more efficiently. We don't have to be in the office every day. Being somebody who lived most of his life in Southern California, I can tell you that driving the freeways during the pandemic was heaven, Right. It was fabulous. It was, it was like going back to the 1960s or something. Yes. The streets were yes. quiet and the air was yes. clear. It was incredible. It, it was, yeah. you did not realize how dirty the air was until the pandemic happened. And then you went outside and you're like, wow, it was so clear and you could see so far. And you heard a lot more birds chirping and, 
you know, so I think, yeah, you know, it's uh, the theme of the book, which I love is really is look, it's, and it's, it's the theme of this podcast. It starts with a decision. It's a decision and mm -hmm. then an action, right? It doesn't mm -hmm. have to be this giant action. It's one action, which then leads to another. And I think it starts with, and correct me if I'm wrong, it starts with just changing your mindset, changing your way of thinking yeah. about it. And then all these other fun things come along like we've talked about during this episode is that it's going to create new industries, new opportunities, new job opportunities, more creativity. Maybe you're somebody who's stuck in a job that you don't like and all of a sudden you can move into something else where you're making a difference and leaving a legacy and it reinvigorates you. Yeah, exactly. And, and so just consider the possibility that the way you see that your assumptions about how things have to be might not be true. They might just be assumptions. I, I think I quoted a, a meditation teacher I once knew who was giving a talk and, and a philosophy professor was, was just grilling him. And he said, don't you have ideas? <laughs> and he said, oh yeah, I have lots of ideas. I just don't believe any of them. <laughs> and uh, what an insightful comment, yes. right? Because we believe we have to commute. We believe this is a climate is a wicked problem. We believe that injustice is entrenched Correct. and intractable. Really? Or is that just an assumption? Yeah. yeah. You know? All right. So last couple of questions here. We're going a little over, but we have to. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about just our country. What do you think lies ahead for the United States as far as global warming, climate change, and in action to, to address all of this? I, I'm hopeful that the Build Back Better bill will pass in some okay. form and that there will be genuine federal investment in in uh, climate action, improving the resilience of communities, improving the energy efficiency and the mitigating the, <clears throat> the causes of climate change. I'm hopeful. Whether or not it passes, I think that there are some forces in the marketplace that are going to make a big difference and forces in some of the states. California, as I said, is a leader on climate policy, but um, uh, corporations are increasingly aware that, that they have to figure out and report on their climate risks to their shareholders if they're going to be viable. Um, none of this stuff is a sure thing, but these are, these are forces that aren't going to change. Uh, renewables cost less. That's a force that's not going to change. And so I think that the, the question is, how do we accelerate yes. what's already in play rather than how do we go from zero to one? We're, we're past one. We just need to get to 100 as fast as we can, so yeah. to speak. And that's where policy can help. If policy isn't there to help, it's going to happen anyway. The investment Ford and GM are making in electric vehicles are, are unprecedented. Mm -hmm. They're the biggest financial investments those companies have ever made. Um, so, so there is a powerful change underway. The more we talk about it, the more we see it, recognize it, and the more we support it with policy, the Agreed. better. The counter, the other side of the coin is that one of the things that shocked me when I really learned about climate change was what struck me as inevitable is that societies would fracture under mm. the pressure because you would see mass migration, you would see food and water insecurity, you would see struggles in insurance markets, housing markets, people's personal investments and savings would be in question. We're already starting yep. to see it. 
I think that a lot of the political divide in this country and the hostility in the political divide is is a sign that the pressures are high and people are yep. aware. The crisis at the U.S. southern border is driven by climate change in Central America that's destroying people's ability to farm productively. Yep. And, the, and it's so bad that they're willing to walk the length of Mexico in poverty to try to come to a place that's yep. safer. That's pretty yep. shocking. The same with the Arab Spring. It was driven by climate change and, and the collapse of, of crops. So Europe struggled with how to deal with an influx of migrants from an area where people weren't able to live you know, in any kind of quality of life anymore and in safety. This is the beginning of that. And so I think it's important to be really conscious of the divisiveness and of trying to calm it down and trying to find solutions quickly in the terms that people are comfortable thinking in. In other words, don't try to, to make Republicans accept the AOC's point right. of view. That's not the way that's yep. going to work with them. But showing them solutions that improve their lives, that's one of the reasons I keep coming back to the electric truck, F-150. Yes. People are saying it will do things for me in better ways than my diesel or my gas truck could. Um, let's start speaking to people in the terms that matter to them. That's the, uh, that's the basis of effective communication. Yeah. And then let's <clears throat> accelerate where we yeah. need to go. I love that answer. I think that really boils it down and changes the entire narrative on it. I think it takes mm -hmm. people from being on the defensive side or being opposed to it to opening them up and saying, well, let me show how it, how it can make your life better. That's where you'll get people yeah. to start to open up and say, okay, let me take a look at this. Yeah. People will change their behavior, but they won't change their values. So, so we don't want to be talking, preaching values to people. We want to treat, talk yeah. solutions, practical yeah. solutions. Look forward to that next book. There's a lot to go into it. <laughs> <laughs> there is. Tom. There, I need, I need another two week contract if I'm going to get that crazy. done. <laughs> oh. So last question I have is where can our listeners find you? Ah, uh, you can find me at TomBowman.com. Pretty simple. Um, and uh, you can find the books on online retailers, yeah. you know, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all of those, uh, and through my website. In fact, you can find the whole series um, at John at Changemakers Correct. Books and on Amazon. And there are some really interesting people contributing to this book series. Oh, it's yeah. Amazing. Some some amazingly, at, you know, you included some amazingly gifted, talented, smart people that are making a difference in the world. And, and I just want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for what you're doing. Um, I really appreciate it. Look forward to having you back after you write the next one. And right. um, I'll look forward to that. So for those of you guys listening, if you like this today, you know, please share it, like it on your social media, tell your friends about it. I thank you for listening to The Daily Decision. Again, I'm your host, Michael Chabot. And remember, it all starts with a decision. Thank you for joining us on another episode of The Daily Decision. If you like what you hear, please do us a favor, share it, like it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it, and remember, it all starts with a decision.